1: Hello and welcome to episode number 19 of The Music Plays the Band. I'm your host Rob Koritz of the Dark Star Orchestra. I hope you're all safe and well today. It is great to be with you today. We were off this past weekend, so uh, it was nice to be home with the family for a little bit. And honestly, it was also nice not having to worry about staying safe on the road. Uh, Things are heading in the wrong direction right now. I think we all know that and we're seeing way too many of our musical brothers and sisters having to cancel shows right now. Hopefully we can all get on board with what needs to be done and try again to regain some normalcy like we had earlier in the summer. You know, We were on the right path and we were heading in the right direction and then, you know, it all kind of went to hell. Anyway, my featured guest today is drummer Jay Lane. Jay is an amazing drummer who's comfortable in all styles, whether he was hitting hard in his days with Primus, interpreting The Dead with Rat Dog, or now showing a little bit more subtle side with Wolf Brothers. I learn something new every time I watch him. I've been a big fan for a long time, great guy, and it was uh, really great to have this conversation. Also with me today is Garrett DeLoyan to talk about his band Jerry's Middle Finger and interpreting the Jerry Garcia Band catalog. Before we get started, I appeal to you once again to support the podcast in any way you can. There's a monthly Patreon subscription which gives you exclusive bonus content including outtakes, expanded interviews and segments, videos and stories from the road, community hang time with me, and much, much more. You can also make a one-time contribution through PayPal, and a portion of all the proceeds goes to the Rex Foundation, the charity started by the Grateful Dead. You can find out about all of this and more at www.themusicplaystheband.net. And wherever you are listening to the podcast, please rate, like, and review. Thanks for being here. Now let's get right to it. Black Music Moment is brought to you by The Clean Store, brandingandapparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs. Technology-driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead and the Jerry Garcia Band, and today we honor Jimmy Cliff. Jimmy Cliff was born James Chambers in 1944 in St. James, Jamaica. He began writing songs while still in primary school, and when he was 14 his father took him to Kingston, where he would take up the stage name Jimmy Cliff. He was not afraid to try and make it at a young age, and he worked hard to get his career started. He sought out producers, played talent shows, and hustled his name all around Kingston. He got a record deal, and after two singles failed to make much of an impression, his career took off when Hurricane Hattie became a hit and he was still just 14 years of age. In 1972, he starred in the movie The Harder They Come, whose incredible soundtrack helped bring reggae music to the world. He has won Grammy Awards, appeared in multiple movies, and contributed to many social causes, including USA for Africa, and the artists United Against Apartheid, who recorded the song Sun City in 1985. He's collaborated with many artists along the way, including Annie Lennox, Stephen Van Zandt, and Sting. And even though he tackles some heavy content, his songs are so uplifting, whether it's because of the up-tempo reggae grooves or his soulful voice. His song, Many Rivers to Cross, never ever fails to make my hair stand up. It's one of my all-time favorite songs. I don't understand how you can't get chills every time you hear it, especially when you see it. I got to see him open up for the dead in 1988 in uh, Eugene, Oregon. And what a great show. Jerry Garcia was a big fan of Jimmy Cliff as well, and probably for the same reasons I just stated. Uh, His songs were groovy, poignant, and were also great vehicles for jamming. Garcia was performing them as early as 1973, and over the years he covered Sitting in Limbo, Struggling Man, and the song We're About to Hear, The Harder They Come. Cliff originally recorded it in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, that's the home of Donna Jean Gacho, in 1971, but redid it to be used as the title track for the movie in 1972. Garcia performed it over 350 times beginning the very next year over the years with all his different lineups jerry really played around with the rhythm and the feel of this tune i just went back and listened to a whole bunch of them and they're all so different but they still keep the vibe of the original so here is jimmy cliff and i guess this would be the second original the 1972 version of the harder they come Today's edition of There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every town is brought to you by the Authenticity Academy, offering you online courses and private coaching. If you're feeling stuck or confused about the direction your life is going in, or you've lost touch with your authentic self, the Authenticity Academy is here to help. www.authenticity.coach So we're heading out to California today to talk to Garrett DeLoyan, lead guitarist for Jerry's Middle Finger, based in Los Angeles. Uh, They do the Jerry Band thing a little bit more than they do the Grateful Dead thing. And Before we get started on this one, i got to tell you, I made a mistake. uh, I'm still a rookie at this, you know, even though we're 19 episodes in, and uh, I didn't quite set my levels quite properly. So my voice might be a little difficult to hear, but I'm not the one you want to listen to anyway on this. Garrett's the one who's got all the cool info. So uh, I apologize ahead of time for the little audio snafu. And here we go. It's a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so I'm here today talking with Garrett Deloyan out in Los Angeles. Garrett is the guitar player for a band called Jerry's Middle Finger. How are you, man? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's very nice to join you today. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, it's a crazy time, but we're all getting through it. Um, And you guys have been playing. I know that because we just saw you weeks ago in... uh, uh, Northern California, in Mendocino,
0: the so, old black oak ranch,
1: yeah, the dust bowl. It was dusty. Yes,
0: it was the brown burger bowl.
1: <laughs> so you guys, you take a little bit. Your Jerry's Miller has a little bit of different take on it because you guys primarily cover the Jerry Garcia back, correct?
0: Yes, that's kind of our focus for with this project for sure.
1: Can you kind of give me a, give us a, a brief rundown on the history and how y'all got started?
0: Sure. It's a kind of a funny story, really. I mean, uh, my friend Rodney, who plays drums for the band, he's really more or less the guy that takes care of driving the ship mostly these days. But he and I have been friends for a long time. I think we met in 92 and we've played music together since then. I think we started JMF around, let's see, 2010 or '11. 12 somewhere in there and basically kind of just something to do we we love the music we wanted to play so we found some people got together and started doing this and uh the funny thing to me is that we called it jerry's middle finger mainly because we just needed something to call it uh but we never really realized it would turn into anything legitimate so to this day, I find myself chuckle when somebody will ask me the name of the band, or I see it, and I'm like, I can't believe it's called Jerry's Middle Finger. Like we, you know, we sort of meant that as a joke. So that uh, you know, over the years, we've we've added uh, a few musicians to the band. We've had a few changes, and uh, we've mostly just done it as a grassroots kind of on our own. Rodney's taking care of all the booking and stuff like that up to this point, and we're happily uh, continuing forward.
1: <laughs> so is the is the instrumentation? um straight garcia band style with two female singers and all of that
0: yes currently uh we have uh, drums bass keys guitar two female vocalists and myself so it's very much situated the way jgb was
1: towards in the 80s style
0: yeah Mm -hmm. exactly
1: and how often now or in a normal time even how often would you all be playing
0: uh i would say Probably a busy month for JMF. If we were really working as we normally would would be probably every couple of weekends or so, maybe uh two, four, five, five shows, six shows a month, something like that. Everybody in the band uh has some kind of a career and family life aside from uh just JMF, except for myself. Um some folks have kids and dental careers and things like that. So it's tough for us to travel a lot. We try to do more like weekends and special, you know, outings here and there and make it logistically feasible. So we're not we're not hammering it too hard, but maybe five five shows a month.
1: But you definitely get outside of LA.
0: For sure. I would say most of our gigs are actually up north. Uh, we work primarily, I'd say, in the Bay Area
1: more so than LA. Gotcha. Um how did you guys decide to take the JGB approach as opposed to the Grateful Dead or a combination of the two?
0: For me, I think the catalog, uh, the JGB catalog, is just a little bit more suited to what I really enjoy as a player. Um, and the songs are more, they're they're a little bit more familiar in, in the sense of like, they're a little bit more rootsy. Uh, Grateful Dead music, obviously, is also embedded in there, but it's much more difficult. And for me, I think in order to really pull off a grateful dead type of an ensemble it requires a lot more uh, well personnel and gear that we are willing or able <laughs> currently to sort of do i mean i i must give you some props you guys are my favorite i mean uh when i found dso I, i'm trying to remember when of my first dso show was it was pretty early uh, but when i found you guys i was like wow now here's here's a group of guys who are really going after this this thing the right way it's got the essence and that's what's missing from most projects if if you ask me is the essence right. so i've tried to focus on the essence of jgb just because it's a lot more approachable
1: as a musician do you notice a big difference or sure you do what let me rephrase all of it what would you say is the biggest difference in Garcia's style playing wise between what he's doing in JGB and what he does in the Grateful Dead?
0: Uh, I would say in the Grateful Dead setting, Jerry was able to, I think, maybe take more risks and try certainly things that were way outside of the parameters of just typical uh, uh, framework of typical music. Uh, roots music, where he was able to really take things out there. Now he did that in JGB as well in certain numbers, but I think he had a greater palette of expression with the Grateful Dead and simply a uh, 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 taking risks type of way. Where in JGB, playing things a little bit more uh, straight and gospelly, a lot more focused on the fundamentals of blues and and things like that
1: right on I'm, I'm going to take that question a step further then obviously you're a a, a huge student of, of of the jerry garcia band stuff you, know, you had so many different style lineups over the years you know, going back into the mid 70s through the 90s you'd have a synth player player then you'd have a piano player you would have no backup vocals you'd have one backup vocal you'd have two went through about 30 different drummers um but over time the constant obviously was jerry and con for the most part but the you know the Constance Jerry, as you as you listen to all of that music, what is the differences in his playing over time in that band? What's your perception of how his playing evolved or changed? That's a great question.
0: I find uh let's see, as I think about it, Jerry's playing did certainly change quite a bit through the years, like um I noticed that in the earlier years of JGB, certainly with the early projects that he was working on, it had a more mellow approach. Um, Around the late 70s, 77, 78, Jerry certainly kind of took on a different vibe. I think he had a lot more fire in his playing and performance. Certainly 78, you can see him just going for it. And then uh, in 79, I think the biggest change was the, change in his tone and that's where things really for me like change so sort of like when the tiger tone happened in 79 and 80 going forward from there things took on a new dimension and i i don't know i feel like he found his voice in that instrument and that's when he he sort of cultivated it from there i think uh stylistically i think jerry remained fairly much himself throughout those years. Uh, but I think there was just more fire towards the later part of the eighties uh, and so forth. Yeah.
1: Right on. It's, it's interesting to hear you talk about that. Cause you know, we've done over the years for whatever reasons, we've had to do a bunch of JGB shows over the years, you know, and, and we'll keep that same thing like we do with the dead. you know, we'll pick a show and, and listen back. So, you know, we might've done a 90 show and we might've done a 76 show and how different they are. Yeah and like 76 is so slow.
0: You know? Yeah.
1: Still groovy as can be, man.
0: Real buttery though.
1: Buttery, great word. Yeah. You know, it's it's listening to it with all the different drummers how that how it just it really shows you how a drummer can change the style of a band. Totally. Listening to Yeah, the same and song from these different eras with different drummers how it changes.
0: Totally. And you mentioned uh Aussie Allers the synth player. That era of JGB music confounds me. To no end because it's a four piece and you have ozzy allers who's doing something that's com- like stylistically to my ear completely different than what jerry's doing yet the grin on jerry's face tells you all you need to know he's like completely into it and right. he's like go for it you know and, and <laughs> ozzy's doing these crazy synthy tone wheel stuff and i'm like how does this fit but somehow it worked
1: so Now, you know, we've talked about all these different ways, you know, how it evolved or changed. Do you personally and with the band, I guess, do you guys take a specific approach to interpreting and performing the music?
0: No, not really. Um, In fact, uh, since we don't necessarily recreate specific shows, uh, we'll just do a song, a song list or a set list, make a playlist. And sometimes the playlist will pull tracks from live recordings, all different eras which kind of makes it interesting because when we'll show up for the gig, some guys have listened to a 76 version. Some guys listen to a 82 version and we'll sort of leave it to the, I leave it to the rhythm section more or less to give me the feel. What do you guys feel? Like, do you want to play it slow and, and buttery or do you feel like really punching it? So we'll, we'll vary it up. And I feel like what we try to do is more or less interpret the music, but we play it, like individuals we we're not necessarily trying to note for note recreate it but just yeah. interpret it with that essence you know like right. yeah
2: i get that very
1: much so <laughs> um I, I often ask in in this segment you know i ask about usually we're talking about grateful dead specifically as opposed to jgb because the musicians i've had on but i'm going to take this with the jgb angle we have this great subculture, this community of like-minded people. Um, and and whether they're here because of the Grateful Dead and then they got into JGB or whether they're here about because of JGB, it doesn't really matter. They're all here because they're fans of this amazing music. But what is it about this music, do you think, in your perception, what is it about this music that creates this like-minded subculture?
0: Well, uh, it's interesting because I, I never got to see the Jerry Garcia band with Me Jerry. Me neither. I saw the Grateful Dead for the first time in 1990. I was 18 years old and I had missed them in 87 because I was too young, but I had started listening to them in 87, 86, I think. And the thing about it was when I dropped the needle on that first Grateful Dead record, I just, there was something about it. I just could not put my finger on, but I could not stop listening to it. I couldn't stop sort of, analyzing it and trying to figure out what is this? It was like, I just, it, I had never seen anything like it. So I think that what has happened as a result of this is that we have a like-minded community of people who similarly recognize something very unique. And with uh, modern music, you know, stylistically, there's these obviously these different genres of music. And I feel as though the Grateful Dead were able to manifest a new set of standards which will stand the test of time. And that's what's so amazing about it is that you can bring together a group of like-minded musicians who have discovered this thing. And without ever rehearsing, without ever really discussing it, you could set up and play knowing which role everyone is playing as though these are standards and the music will happen. Oh,
1: that's yeah, what man. I think is the magic thing about it. That's a, I agree wholeheartedly, man. That's an awesome answer. And, and, The fact that you're out there keeping that Jerry Garcia band music going for everybody is really cool because there's not not a whole lot of bands that are just dedicated to that. You know, the dead bands will throw in a tune, including us. We'll throw in a tune here and there, and it's great. You know, I love to play. I'll take a melody in the middle of of, of totally set where we're doing dead tunes, and you throw that in. But you guys really out there just helping people get turned on to the Jerry Garcia band stuff or or stay in touch with it who had it before. I that's it. That's so much, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time with me today. That is from Jerry's Middle Finger out of Los Angeles, but playing all up and down the West Coast, it's Garrett Deloitte. Thank you so much, my friend.
0: I really appreciate you having me, and I can't wait to see you guys again soon.
1: My pleasure. that was great i want to thank garrett for taking the time today and that was a little snippet of jerry's middle finger you heard right there they uh they sound really really good if you like what you were hearing today and would like to support the podcast we have two different ways for you to do that you can make a one-time contribution via paypal or become a patron with a monthly subscription that includes expanded video versions of our segments all the outtakes that don't make it onto the podcast uh, community hang time videos I put together from home and on the road, including a bunch of rare DSO footage, which has been a whole lot of fun to go through. You can support the cause, learn more about the podcast and our sponsors, read the blog or contact me through our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. And if you have time, please like, rate, and review the podcast on whatever player you might use. Thanks for your continued support and for helping me spread the word about the podcast. I really appreciate all your efforts. Our feature conversation today is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. On Shakedown or online, go to Grateful Sweats for subtle dead designs. Search Grateful Sweats on Etsy and see for yourself. Designs only other heads will get when you're wearing the state of Tennessee with jet in it and someone says nice shirt, you know they're on the bus. The cap with a single finger in the air makes its point and you can look great on tour with men's and ladies tees and tanks, caps, pins and clearance items as low as $5. Get them at www.etsy.com shop gratefulsweats Grateful Sweats or click from the sponsors link on our website, themusicplaystheband.net. Or if you're out there seeing any fish shows this summer and all the Dead & Company shows, I know that Grateful Sweats is set up in the parking lot, so you can go visit them there as well. Tell them I sent you. My guest today is Jay Lane, drummer for, for, for well, a lot of things. Uh, he was one of the earlier drummers in Primus before joining forces with Bob Weir and Rob Wasserman in pretty much forming Rat Dog in the mid-90s, and he's been a constant in any Weir project since then, including the current group Wolf Brothers. He plays in quite a few other Dead-related projects, as well as jazz gigs and all kinds of other stuff. We always have great conversations when we're hanging out, and this one felt super relaxed, kind of just like we were sitting around backstage. Besides his playing, one of the things I love about Jay is his candor, and there's a lot of great insight in this one. So here you go, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jay Lane. Um, all right, so I am here today with Jay Lane. How are you, my friend? Good, brother. You're home in San Francisco. Yes, I am. And now, did 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 you grow up in San Francisco?
3: Yeah, man. I'm like one of the only ones left. I mean, I'm, there might be a few, a couple of us, but uh, this uh, this city was extremely gentrified by the whole Silicon Valley, uh, you know revolution. And, uh, I'm like the local in the college town. Basically. I've been here the whole time.
1: Tell me, man, growing up in San Francisco, then can you give us a little bit of a, tell us a little about your musical upbringing when you started, how you got into playing and all that.
3: So my mom, I think since I was adopted and she, all she knew that I was a child of some sort of musician or some, some sort of thing. I think she had enough of, I think she found out enough that I was some sort of um summer of love uh love child or something like that you know probably what back when it was actually the summer of love like earlier 60s you know not and uh somehow she she thought i needed to have some sort of music in my life of course she's founded head start so she's all on top of she's super progressive she's on mccarthy's blacklist man that's how hip she was um so she uh she took me around. I'll never forget. I was nine years old. She took me around looking for a, some sort of musical instruction place. We went to a Yamaha piano school and, uh, went to another like, uh, you know, group lesson kind of thing. I didn't seem to take to any of it. And then we ended up, we ended up at this guy, um, private teacher's, uh, studio. He had like a basement studio with like eggshell cartons and carpets and just on the walls. And it's totally like, you know, dead, 70s studio basement studio kind of vibe and i I was in love i was and and he was drum teacher it was a single it was like um you know uh one-on-one lessons so i was like yes this is what i want to do and then uh after a few years of that you know i wouldn't practice so she's she would tell me if i didn't practice if the teacher told me told her i wasn't practicing then she'd stop paying for lessons well she ended up doing that but i ended up having a drum set in my room after that so i think that's that's how we all really got going right our parents were cool enough to let us have a drum set in our room
1: it took me two years though i had to do just snare drum first for like two years before my teacher let me have a kick drum and all that
3: oh wow yeah my teacher did that too i did the practice pads and then finally snare drum and stuff but But, and i had a practice pad set before i could even have a room set i had a practice pad set but,
1: um, the thing is we would like, I'm sure you were the same way. I'd try and get my lesson shit, you know, I'd blow through it cause I didn't really care that much about it. And all I wanted to do was get the headphones on and start playing along to songs and figuring that shit out on my own. So I didn't, didn't spend nearly as much time doing what I was supposed to be t- being taught.
3: <coughs> exactly. <man. coughs> i to love to set up my stereo. I don't know if you did this, but set up your stereo speakers right on the, like right behind your cymbals. So this, your stereos is sitting there blaring. Yeah. As you're playing the drums, the stereos is right on the other side of the drum set. I used to get so many complaints from the neighbors. That's how cool my mom was, man. You know, like... Regardless of the, what the neighbors were complaining all the time, or whatever she let me make that noise, and and again, like she was, she's like, she was fifty six when she adopted me, man. So imagine, like, she's this is probably like you know she's seventy years old putting up with this fucking fourteen year old kid batting <laughs> on drums and shit. You know? So that was pretty pretty amazing, man. Pretty pretty, I'm pretty lucky, you know.
1: So you just took those two years of lessons, then that was it, and the rest is self taught.
3: Well, I no, I I took this, uh Two years of lessons, and then I started taking from another... He, he recommended another teacher for me. Uh, um, the first guy's name was Bob Rose, and he recommended a guy named Steve Savage, who actually started Blue Bear School of Music, which is here in San Francisco. He started back then, but he was a drum teacher also, and I took from him for a little while. But then and then I, I stopped taking lessons, but what happened was I went to junior high school uh, shortly thereafter, and I was, uh, you know, I, I, I got to play the drums in the jazz band in, in junior high school and, uh, and the teacher turned me on to weather report, the jazz group right? And, and I was like 14 years old and that shit just like ended me, you know I mean? I was just like, that was it. I was blast off into, I mean, of course I loved music before that. I loved, uh, I was really into, uh, when I was young, I liked Elton John a lot, I like the Osmonds, Jackson 5. Um, I, I ended up listening to a lot of stuff like uh, like Brass Construction. I listened to War. A lot of urban stuff, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, I, I, my mom took me to a garage sale when I was, uh, I don't know, I was probably 12 years old or something. And and uh, there was a bunch of records. I started flipping through the records. I was so bored. I did not want to be there at all. And. <laughs> It was like one of those community things. Where it's like, you gotta go with your mom. It's like, oh God, like nothing. There's nothing here for me. So I started looking through these records. So I see this one record with all this cartoon stuff on it. And it was, it was standing on the verge of getting it on the, the, the funkadelic um, And I was like, oh, I want this mom. And, and, and it, you know, check this out. So she was hella cool. So she, she got me that album. I listened to that thing all the time. So then I, I knew who funkadelic was. And then, and then also being in, uh, being in San Francisco with with a bunch of you know uh, urban kids uh, when 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 the flashlight album the Parliament flashlight album came out in seventy seven that was like a huge big thing you know it was flashlight you know that song I remember going to the record store and I was gravitating towards the uh, uh, Ohio players I, I I I actually love the Ohio players a lot and i uh, went to see that was actually the first one of the first concerts i actually got what i got to see was the fire tour you know fire yeah. Banner saw that tour <laughs> uh um i was gravitating towards towards those albums so then fast forward you know i'm in junior high school love weather report jazzed out of my mind funk also prince comes out that's the end of me like you know prince 1984 i'm 20 years old that's like the shit I got, I'm, you know, I, I didn't wear eyeliner, but I had, I, I didn't have the jacket, but you know, I had the hair. <laughs> so, uh, but, but, um, and everybody else did too. Uh, but the thing was my only experience with a grateful dead at that time was I had a, I had a buddy from music camp. Well, I guess I got to add that my mom also was cool enough to send me to this Berkeley run music camp up in the uh, Russian river that um, were actually like uh, people like Whoopi Goldberg, Bobby McFerrin um, and a bunch of local jazz guys that never really made it big. Um, uh, were up there actually Whoopi Goldberg and Bobby McFerrin were up there before they got famous before, he, before he did. Don't worry, be happy. And before she did color purple or moms, maybe. So this, I, I lived in San Francisco but at the summer camp Casadero Music Camp up in the Russian River I met all these kids from Berkeley and that's what really got me so basically when I I went off to college to Berkeley Berkeley LEE College of Music in Boston right, right out yeah. of high school my mom sent me there that's another cool ass thing she did kind of <laughs> but also kind of not really knowing that that's not really the greatest place to start your musical career
1: you know so no you get chewed <laughs> up and put in the grinder there man <laughs>
3: Totally, and so I was like taking shrooms and acid every day. I was like, oh, "This place isn't that for me."
4: Right.
3: <laughs> so I come home at Christmas break and did not go back. Really, <laughs> I was there three months or whatever. So uh, I came back from that college, and my buddies from the music camp had a ska band in Berkeley that was playing sold out all ages shows because all their high school buddies would come to the shows. And it was called the Uptones. And they were kids from Berkeley. And I was a little older than them. And all of the kids, it was like a little mill of kids that were in high school and then slowly peeling off gold and going to college. And, you know, most of them got a real, had real careers and real jobs. Right. This band stuff was just for kids or whatever. So I was in that band for I, you know, the drummer went off to college. So I got the drum chair in that band. And they were making money, they were playing gigs. I was like, I'm not going back to music college, I'm working now. I'm right, musician. right. And so anyway, from that band, I kind of, you know, there was a whole scene of bands, a ska scene kind of in the early 80s in the Bay Area. And I ended up jumping from that band to another band called the Freaky Executives, was a 10-piece funk, more funk band, and they smoked weed, and they actually kept their, they divvied up the bread after the gig, unlike the other little kid band where the, the manager took all the bread and hoarded it. Right. Nice. Um, but uh but anyway so so and they didn't smoke weed and so anyway so um it's funny how weed has guided my decisions in many decisions in life you know but uh but anyway so i started playing with band freak executives and we had a pretty good local career man we had we we had a big record deal but it, the shit just fucking fell apart i mean it's just you know it was just like the classic example of a band that's you know, got everything meant to be and just gets divided and conquered. And, you know, it's just the classic story, man. Classic. Again, classic. So, you know, big Warner Brothers contract. and shit ends up kind of falling apart. But while we were big, while we were locally big there for a second, we rehearsed at this place in Emeryville, a warehouse where a lot of other bands rehearsed. And there was this dude named Les who had this band around the corner. It was kind of like King Crimson. I didn't even know his last name. It was this dude named Les. <laughs> And he he would he liked to smoke weed, so I'd go over there and smoke weed with him. And the drummer was cool, I was to go over there and geek out on drums with him. Uh, and uh, the drummer's name was Peter Libby, uh, and he was uh, one of the earlier drummers of Primus. So, anyway, so I I, I would hang out with those guys and smoke weed because I was at that rehearsal studio all the time. We were I mean, freaky executives, rehearsed like every day, so I was down there every day.
1: Have you gotten turned on to the dead at all by that point?
3: Yeah, so so I had a buddy, I had one buddy also from that music camp, who was in the Dead, and I would go. He lived in Berkeley. I would I would take Bart over his house and spend the night. We'd just listen to records all the time, listen to records, and then he would put on the Dead a lot, and mostly to check out, you know, because we were drummers. He, he mostly to check out the drum stuff, right? Like that's like, and he knew I was into the, the more like choppy kind of playing and fusion and all that shit, so. He, he, you know, when, when he would play me the dead, he'd try to play the more, the, the more choppy kind of stuff, you know, but I never made it to see a show, you yeah. know, and, uh, but you know, the years went by and, uh, what happened was, uh, Les Claypool called me one day and said, Hey, I got this bass player, Rob Wasserman, who's hiring me to go play on a, on a, uh, a, a, a radio ad for Levi's, Levi's jeans. And he wants to knows wants to know if I know a drummer, and it was going to be upright bass, uh, you know, and electric bass, um, and drums. So the so we went down to Hyde Street Studios, met Rob Wasserman. We recorded. John Cutler was there uh, doing the engineering, and uh, and it was the quickest, easiest thousand bucks I ever made. I was like, oh, this is amazing. So uh, <clears throat> so then uh, so then Rob called me up very shortly thereafter um to go up to weir's house to to play uh with them on a thing on a musical uh
1: oh the satchel page block. thing right
3: Not, that never saw the right. light of day unfortunately. um <clears throat> but this was uh late 93 late 1993 i think and uh, i had just gotten married um
1: uh, so and- at that point though how much at that point so now all of a sudden you're in this world with Wasserman and we're it, it, it-
3: yeah we, and, and I I didn't know anything about the dead I all I knew all I knew, all I knew it was t- a touch of gray a touch of gray is the only tune I fucking knew wow. you know I mean? I mean I knew some of the other shit just from like hearing it maybe like you know peripherally but I I did not know shit the funny thing is <clears throat> I guarantee you had I walked into that room meeting Bob, we were looking like I do today, knowing what I do today, I would have not got the gig yeah. at all. He wanted the fact that I had a crew cut, Niners jersey, did not know a goddamn thing about the dead. He was like perfect, wow. you know yeah. what I mean? And 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 that's that. To this day, I always have to remember that. Like when I feel like. Oh, here comes my turn to be in further, or here comes my turn to be in the other ones. It's like, oh, yeah, well, they, they always go, okay, who's the obvious guy, obvious guy? No, let's get this other guy over here. Like, because when I first got the gig with Bob Weir, Prairie Prince was playing right. a lot, you know, because he had played with Vince.
1: And the tubes and all that, right.
3: And Prairie's a huge deadhead, huge fucking deadhead. Knows all the shit. And was playing with Bob, and I think he was just like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> <You know? laughs> I don't blame him. But the thing is, Prairie would never ever. I this was me. This is me. Just I'm projecting this shit. I I never got the vibe from Perry like that. Uh, Prairie, and and I think he's one of the most kindest people I've ever met in my yeah. life, man. I I can't. And it's a badass artist.
1: So at that point, now you got to start listening to the music, and you got to get to know the music, and. What as you start checking out the dead and really hearing what they were all about, you know, and giving it a chance, what was it? What was it that grabbed you from that music?
3: You're not going to believe it. The first shit I started listening to was Bob's Heaven Help the Fool album, and I was like, and I was like, oh, killer man! It's like fucking just uh. It's like Steely Dan. <laughs> the dead's just like Steely Dan. Oh, kill her, man. It's all like produced produced up LA session cats. Oh, cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then you come to find out that's not the case.
3: Not the case at all. So then be- th- there begins my long, strange trip, you know, <laughs> uh, of me becoming a born-again deadhead, having everybody in, in Rat Dog hating me because now I'm the fucking trying to tell everybody what to do. I, I it's, it's You know, I've run the gamut of fucking going from not caring about the shit to caring too much about it. Right. <laughs> you know, um, as I'm sure you guys all have, too. You know, it's like it's it's a, there's so much there's so much in this music that it's it's, it's almost hard not to find something you love or, or at least one song that like because like what ended up happening was, you know, when you're a professional musician, you're getting gigs. You're like, okay, I got a gig. Learn the tunes. Right. Get a gig. learn the Tunes. But do you covet what you're playing, or are you just learning the tunes just for the gig? You know, what I mean, like yeah. that's that's kind yeah. of the battle of of being this uh, in this music musician kind of world. Because half the time, you know, if you're a supportive player like we are, you're playing somebody else's music. Right. So and 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 you know, hey, it might not be your favorite, but you got to work. You got to get a gig. So. Uh, so, how much of yourself do you open to give to this shit? Because, like, honestly, man, when, when I played with uh, with Eaton and those guys, you know, and then uh, and and Skip, and then you know, just hanging out watching you guys, that was so eye opening for me, man. Because here you guys are playing it like you played it. So you just play it in your sleep, just play it for fucking fun. You guys love this music so much, Thank you. you know, and that's just it's it's just. It's just like wow, wow that that it really gave me something to uh, to look forward to because you really do get sucked into this world of of people playing on gigs for the gig. You yeah, know, they, they they learn the tunes for the gig, and sometimes sometimes they don't really learn them. And there's as you know, Rob, there's a lot of interest intricacies in this dead stuff. Believe it or not, when I watched you when I was out there at the soundboard watching you guys at Red Rocks. I was taking notes. I was like, "Oh, that's how the this shit." Because, dude, honestly, man, it's I'm like flattered, man. Thank you. Because <laughs> I didn't listen to the dead, and I'm you get the gig with Bob Weir, and then you're trying to learn the shit through him, and he's the guy that was playing off all the other shit. And it's like, whoa! Without all that other shit, there, it's like it was. It's almost like a mystery how the fucking like I I had such a hard time figuring out what the hell Bob is doing, but his when when you hear it, all the puzzle people puzzle pieces put together so, oh there it is there's that fucking sound. I'm, I'm
1: glad you touched but that because that was going to be a question later because he i mean you've played with bob probably more as much as or more than anybody and he plays guitar especially rhythm guitar unlike anybody in the world you can't define what he does my question how hard was it to grasp how to play with that
3: <coughs> it's uh really hard because some of the shit he ain't playing shit right Let's play this song. Okay, two, three, four. Chink! Like oh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Man, the dead played everybody played rhythm and parts. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh especially Keith had the, the really cool shit. But but Garcia's parts, like, you know, he, a lot of times his shit sounds like a bass line to me, you know, like his shit's like just fucking there's so much stuff like easy answers. You know that song of course, easy answers. Sure. That's the song I'm talking about. So it's it goes bum, 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 bum mm-hmm. right? But there's actually a Garcia part in there that I finally heard. I when I finally heard that Healy those Healy tapes, I gotta get, I gotta get another, get another copy of that. You know what I'm talking about? I do. Those, I know like exactly he- what you're talking about. Yeah. So so Garcia goes. It's like oh, oh there it is well there's that thing that makes me not have to go
1: don't bat, bat, all by my sure. fucking side. sure there's pieces of the puzzle that are missing at that point i want to go back then i want to talk about the drummers because we're talking about you know now that we're talking about the band obviously you're going to, you interpret the music your own way whether it's further or rat dog or the wolf brothers any dead related groups you're performing with but Now you started having to listen to the music to get to know it. Is there anything that you would say that you take from Billy and Mickey that influences how you play?
3: Oh, dude, are you kidding? Like the problem with me, I think up until I really started trying to understand what the fuck is going on here is I heard everything in parts. Yeah. What's what's the drum part? What's the fucking part? Everything was a two, four, eight. Or 16
1: and that don't work here.
3: <laughs> and, and and this shit is just like amorphous. The funny thing is, is after fucking trying to fucking try and try and try to finally kind of getting loosening up, I finally loosen it up after all these years. Then I go back and play with Claypool. He's like, what the hell are you doing, Jayski? What's all this fucking Mickey Heart shit? Take hey, it <laughs> up, man. Take it up. <laughs> Come on, man. Come on, Jayski. Go back to playing the parts. What's the part? I'm like, oh.
1: Two different uh, worlds, man.
3: (laughs) But yeah, you know.
1: So I want from Billy. Let's go. Let's look at Billy for a minute. What from his playing grabs you? What What do you take from his playing most when you when you Well, I I,
3: every time I've tried to watch Billy, I I go okay, cool. Billy's playing tonight. I'm gonna go to the show. I'm gonna watch Billy. I'm not gonna hang out backstage. I'm actually check him out, watch him. I swear to God, dude. Every time I've done that. Next thing you know, it's 2 in the morning. (laughs) I'm like, wait, wait, wait.
2: What What, happened?
3: What what just happened? (laughs) Oh, I know. He hypnotized me into partying. is exactly what happened. I forgot about watching the drums. It was like, wait a minute. I was going to watch the drums. God damn it.
1: Fuck. It moved you, man.
3: It it just moved me so much. I'm like, hey, hey. You started having a good old old time. (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah. I was going to watch the drums. Damn it. You know, because I, I can't tell what he's doing. He's so, he, he's so. You know, I, I was I was starting to wonder what the hell he's hearing. You know, and he said to me one time, just keep your ears real open, listen to everything and stuff. Like, uh, all right, yeah, try that too. I mean, I'll try that. But uh, I was trying to think what he's hearing. What is he hearing? And I was wondering, and I'm still kind of wondering if, because you know, because. <laughs> When you're playing the drums, what makes you decide to hit this drum or that drum or this cymbal or that cymbal? Is it a choice based on volume, or is it based on frequency? You know, or do you hear a frequency that's not being played, and then you want to play it? And so that's what I was thinking—if wondering if he's doing, like, if he—why would I go and hang out on the tom right now? you know and cuz cuz I every time I try to do it it feels like I'm poking out like a sore sore thumb it's like what the fuck are you doing right. you know so I and honestly man I, I'm going to skip around a little bit here but I finally heard a jerry Band recording of uh, of this goddamn buzz Buchanan. yeah man and I'm like who is this cat and cuz that that's me. I hear me when I, I. It's a 1978 March whatever Veterans Hall fucking show, and I'm like, oh man, this drummer is like, but he's not doing. He doesn't seem to be doing that Billy thing or no. or, or anything else. And and I somehow I really f- am feeling that. Thing. So I've been I've been listening to that. like all, That's what I listen to when I just want to put on something Right. I mean, he
1: was so good. And he was such a short sliver of time where he's there, too, you know?
3: Yeah, it was like two, two years. Yeah, ago, and,
1: right? but he's pocket all the way, man. I mean, I
3: mean un, un, unbelievable. And then somebody told me he's a lefty. Is that right? Yeah, I think
1: so. I think so. Yeah. What about Mickey? What about his point? You, you take anything out of that?
3: Well, Mickey is like... I can't believe how... Cause sometimes I hear the slop, you know, and I'm like, but but there's a beauty in it. There's something that that you can't. It's like there's it's there's there's a skill in that slop, yeah. you know. It's it's unbelievable, man. The, I know there's something there that, that that that's incredible, and and it and it kind of lightens the music for me too. And it's it's I, I really like the double drumming is hard, you know. What double drumming is not easy, and I. The times I've done it, I have not. Um, I have not really liked it. Uh, the most of the times I've done it, I've only done it a couple times where it's like, okay, I don't feel like it's a battle
1: right. of who's gonna Sure, man. Believe me, you I know. know.
3: And you guys, I don't. I, I, I'm going to pick your brain about that a little bit too. See what your concept is about. Because sometimes it's like, all right, you got it, man oh, now I got it. Oh, cool. No, now you got it. Okay, cool. But sometimes it's like, oh, you got it. Oh, now I'm going to play some Toms. Oh, now you got the Toms. Okay, I'll play some some, Oh, now you're going to do that too? Fuck, I'll just sit here and do nothing. How about that, That happens sometimes
1: to both of us, you know? (laughs) You're right. That happens sometimes to both of us where we'll even talk about it and say, you know, on that song, you were filling up so much space, there was nothing for me to do, so I had to lay out, you know? Um, Yeah.
3: But at least you guys are figuring it out, though. Yeah, that's that's because I've been on gigs, I, 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 I've I done that thing with guys, great drummers, too, that, that won't give you any. Yeah, they just, I know it's like, it's like, well, why am I here if you're if you got it all man? right? You got the cymbals, you got the toms, you got the fucking this and that, plus you're looking over at me telling me to shush or some shit. It's right. like, all that's, right,
1: man. Sometimes what'll happen, you know, Dino and I've been playing together, we played together for five years before we joined Darkstar. So we've been playing. Oh, wow. We've been playing together for almost 25 years. Um, so now you know it's it's an innate thing because we have the book. I know a lot of my fills end on four just by by nature the way I play. A lot of my fills end on four, and he finishes that last beat going back into the one with the with the, oh, with the cool. way he fills, and that just came naturally that we learned it. But we'll try and make a conscious effort. <clears throat> a lot of time, like when we get to when there's a solo going on in a tune. We try and make a conscious effort to, for only one of us to be on the ride and one of us to be on the hat, but we, ne- yeah. but we never talk about who it's going to be. So there's certain times right. where we'll just start laughing because we both go like this, and then we see that, and we both switch back, and we both go. Uh, until right, we, right. Oh, you got it, okay? Uh, I'm like, over here now. I, no, you go.
3: No, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, no. You. no go it ahead, happens
1: go all ahead. the time, and then we just start looking at each other and smiling because it's funny. Um, so But funny, yeah, your good, ears got to be big. You got to put your ego aside a little bit more. Play a little less um yeah but you know it doesn't always work there's plenty of times where i'll play a 16th note tom phil at the same time he's playing a triplet tom phil and it sounds it sounds terrible you know we're bumbling over each right. other slop as you called it you know yeah um yeah, you try not to have I it think- happen but even after playing together all those years it's always gonna happen you know oh yeah uh, totally still with billy and mickey as well who were some of your other influences growing up drumming you mentioned a. uh, uh uh, weather report so that's like 70 you said you were 14 ish so that's that's erskine back then
3: yeah and i i wouldn't seen. i saw him too man i saw uh saw him at the warfield with man,
1: peter Erskine. nice yeah. man who were some of your Jocko. other influences
3: Jocko, because Jocko played drums too okay. um and billy cobham because everybody loved billy cobham because he was the one guy that played the you know back in the back in the day it's very uh lenny white uh i gotta say freddie white also the drummer for earth and fire um uh probably a lot of guys who who played on a lot of songs i love that i don't know their names but david garibaldi was a huge influence yeah That was funny, too, because we did that first further festival after Jerry died, and
1: Mickey's... Uh, Planet Drum had Garibaldi.
3: Yeah, but it, I think he called it Mystery, Mystery
1: Box. Mystery Box, right, right. That was, I liked that band with the mint julep singing and everything. That was cool stuff. It's a great yeah. album.
3: But, dude, the funny thing is, is like, it was like we were playing, we were headlining, the Rat Dog headlined that tour. So every night, it's like Giovanni, Dave Garibaldi, Zakir Hussein, Sikiru yep. and Mickey, the like the heaviest drummers in the world, and then me on a little three-piece <laughs> three-piece kit right after him. But I got along with those guys, great man. I I, I really did. I'm I'm really good friends. Sikiru has actually come over my house twice just mess around and record.
1: Right on, man. Tell him I said, hey, I love him, man. I love. He sits in yeah. with us, and it's just so cool. More textures. There you go. It's texture.
3: Dude, his. That, his one mic and his one little thing, when, when you got one of these like big big jam things with ending jam with like fucking 20 people on stage, his shit cuts through all that shit through the PA, man.
1: Uh, on a little 6x12 drum. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs>
3: it's like the biggest sounding thing. Of, like all that shit that Mickey has sounds
1: tiny compared to that. Thing. Right. Yeah. Let me ask you this, man. You, you, you've been parts of we've talked about all the different projects and it's, they, they, they vary widely, you know, and some of them, like the primus and the other stuff you do with less, you're hitting pretty hard, but the stuff yeah. with Bob, especially lately, it's, it, I don't know if it's more subdued or maybe subtle is a better word. Is there, is there a reasoning behind that? Is there a mindset that you have to go through to come and and play a little less aggressive like that?
3: Uh, well, to be honest with you, I kind of prefer yeah. it. You know, it's, it's easier. I, I'd like to. I'd like to be able to make more music with less effort. You know, to be honest with you, some of that Primus stuff, I felt like I was just trying too hard, and it was just like the the harder. I sometimes I feel like the harder I try, the harder it is. The harder I try, the, the, the smaller it is. It's small. It's almost like I'm trying to get that Bruce Lee one inch punch out of the thing. You know, and and and. Uh, and, uh, I mean, even, even if I, even when I play with Claypool, I actually did play another new year's gig right before COVID shit. We played a sausage reunion gig, uh, opening up for his Claypool Lennon delirium at the Warfield. And it was me and the original, original guitar player, Todd Hooth, who actually I'm doing another project with, um, it was the three of us and he called it sausage and we played, uh, and it, it was like effortless, man. It was so fun. And uh, I felt like I really finally, you know, it f- was one gig, but I mean, I finally was able to like, I didn't even feel like I was sweating at the end of the gig. Whereas I was like, when, when I rejoined Primus in 2010, that was like some of the hardest work I've ever tried to do on drums. I feel, you know, I feel like that guy who took over from Keith Moon, the real buff guy. Uh, Kenny
1: who was, like, Jones.
3: Kenny Jones, but he's like, not that happening, but <laughs> you know, but super, super buffed and trained right. and all fit and all. It, but it's like somehow i just could not i felt like i couldn't fucking do it good enough somehow well i was trying to fill some pretty big shoes you know herb the, the drummer who took over primus and really yeah. created the drum sound for primus and made them famous after i was in him uh he joined in 1989 uh he uh his shit is hard as hell to play if man. it is and it's not my style at all. You know, I'm on. T- I'm I'm all up on top of the beat, right there, matching Claypool's fucking rhythm. Right, Herb is like lumbering, kind of like pulling back. It's like that push and pull between he's pulling it and Claypool's pushing it. That's kind of what created that premise sound.
1: I'm gonna take it a step further because with Wolf Brothers, you know, for the longest time when you guys started, like when last time I saw you here in St. Louis, it was a trio. You know, it was you and Bob and Don. And yeah. now it's like a ten piece, I think, with Jeff and, and the horns and everything. Yeah,
3: no, it's it, you know I, th- I think Bob's really happy having it all filled in and stuff. I'm kind of like I'm on the fence because as as, as great as it, it is, as it is with all the horn players and Jeff and Greg, um, I thought we were starting to get on to some shit with the trio, you know, it was and Bob was starting to play. Bob was playing shit he'd never played before, you know. And I thought that I thought we were starting to grow, and he was starting to fill in a lot of these holes. And I, he was starting to play some shit Garcia played. He's like, oh yeah, that's old. That's that old claw hammer fucking shit that nobody knows how to play. That shit Garcia showed me himself. I was like, yeah, all right, man. But I think that I think the focus of the tension being too much on Bob was too much for him. You know what I mean? I think he he always likes to have another buffer so he's not the main center sure. of attention it's too much on him to be the center now, that's of attention.
1: kind of the rhythm guitarist mindset you know exactly i, I happen i mean I, I know it's very different i love the i love the arrangements with this un- eclectic combination of instruments you know a horn and a pedal steel together and all that but when, oh, yeah. when you go from the trio to the 10 piece do you have to uh alter what how you play to accommodate that having more voices on stage
3: I I didn't really think about it. I I I uh, the, um I I didn't give it much thought. But uh, to be honest with you, the only the only thing I'm doing different now is now that I've listened to that uh, that Buzz Buchanan cat, I'm just trying to play a shit like him. I was like, what would Buzz do?
1: That's, that's <laughs> the mindset, right on. You also you know, started. <laughs> we talked about this a little when we hung out at Red Rocks, but um, you started playing. Uh, more electronic drums and and cymbals now which which we had to talk about what's the reason behind switching over to the electronic
3: well i tried it out I've, i've been bob likes low stage volume it's a great concept if you can get it you know to have a super light stage volume and then you hear yourself out of the house unbelievable so the, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, it's so cool. Uh, and I just, I noticed I was trying to get quieter and quieter and quieter, trying to get quieter cymbals, trying to get quieter drum heads, quieter sticks, trying to hit quieter, everything quieter, quieter, quieter. And then I'm like, I listen to the tapes, I'm like, I sound like a pussy on the drums, man. I'm not playing shit. You know what yes. I mean? And it's like, I, I, I got to fucking be able to play this shit with energy when it needs it. You not feel like it's too loud for Bob or whatever. And I, I, I realize that, that again is another thing of frequency because I think it's like, there's times where it is. Okay. I think Billy does it really well. He's, he knows when there's, there's times between the vocals and all that where it's okay to hit smack it a little harder. Uh, just make sure you're off the cymbals when he's singing and shit and you're not creating, uh, long cymbal rings while he's trying to sing or do a busy Tom fill while he's singing mm-hmm. or some shit. So, um, as I was still trying to get better in that, I, I also was, you know, uh, in, I, I've always been into the electronic drums and I've been noticing that the technology has really rapidly advanced with the, with the pads and the, and the sounds and everything. So I took a gamble. I was just like, okay, this shit is now to a level where, um, where, where it's kind of like in a big venue, where it's like it's so fucking. You're not hearing any acoustics off the stage anyway. Like a big giant venue, I don't think it really and matters. It's all
1: coming out of PA, yeah, so right? I,
3: yeah, I would, I would never use that shit in a small club. Never. Right. Only, only on a gig where you're dependent on the PA, and it's you're not hearing anything off the stage anyway. Right. And and I gotta, I gotta say, Rob, I was nervous about doing it at Red Rocks. But, and, and the first night, we had a little technical glitches. And the, the, the settings on those things are a little different when you're in your room and when you're at the gig. It was just the, I, I was dicking and dicking and dicking with the velocity settings, trying to get it to really not be too dynamic. I was right. trying to get a less dynamic range on the thing. And then we actually ended up going putting a real kick drum head on um, for the last couple gigs we did. It was a lot better because the kick drum um, now it's a kick, real kick drum, which doesn't bother. That's not bothering anybody. So I went for it at Red Rocks, you know?
1: Yeah, man. And then when you and I were talking about it, it the next week when we were playing Red Rocks and you were out there, we were sit, standing back and catering talking about the cymbals because I was really surprised to see the electronic cymbals up there. Because, in, I mean, up to this point in, in life, electronic cymbals are pretty much sucked.
3: Yeah. No, I but the shit is to a level now. I mean, this shit's been upgraded, man. And you know, I'm not I I'm, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to fuck myself up on i not being able to play. I wanted to see if the shit was dynamic, if I could do the right kind of dynamics and play like I normally play without changing the way I'm hitting the shit at all and have the shit still work. And I think like by the last couple by the last Greek Theater gig we did, it did, man. You know, I have to, I have to, I can't, I can't, I can't smudge the the drums as much as you can with real drums, if, if you understand I what I mean. you know, Smudge, smudge the shit together. You right. know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I know I'm going to hit this thing wrong right now, but I'll hit it right and right now. And it's just, that's how I'm sound or whatever. But like, you, you almost have to, to think about like your notes a little bit better but the funny thing is when sometimes i'm listening to the fucking taste back of the of the gig it's like that it sounds it's like i can't it's like okay that's sounds cool i mean you know he's processing the shit anyway right. it's like going through it's a it's a mic with a budget digital processing going through a digital board anyway
1: right. and the more you hear all that shit i mean every time you hear it and it sounds good that's going to make you more comfortable for the next time out
3: yeah, so I finally got to a point where, uh, so where I I uh, I went for it, um, but yeah, I had a real kit on standby. Trust Did me, you? I had a, we had we had mics, we had those shit all on standby. Did that shit go wrong? Really? And you know what? The only thing that went wrong was a D because I'm using eight uh, eight uh, balanced outputs, quarter inch, and one of the fucking and so you got to have eight DIs and. Believe it or not, one of the DI's, the kick drum, fucking DI, fucking blew blew up. And, and here, here's and basically here's me and Bob trying to fucking convince everybody else, including Don Was, super producer, that this is the shit. I'm like, <laughs> Don Don Waz is probably talking big shit about me behind my back. Man, he's like. And this motherfucker's playing V-drums. God damn it. I, I got like a 1940 bass and shit. And this motherfucker's playing V-drums.
1: You know what? You just you just mentioned Don, and that makes me want to ask a question that I hadn't thought about. But, you know, when you played with Rob and you played with Don, they're both primarily, they're playing upright. And when you play with Rob and he's yeah. playing electric, how different is that for you as a drummer?
3: Uh, wh- wh- the, who's playing electric? When, like
1: when Robin was in the band and he was playing electric. Oh, so yeah. how different oh, is yeah. it as a drummer to play these songs, these Grateful Dead tunes, these Bob songs, whatever it is, with an upper, with an acoustic bass or an electric bass? Is there any difference? Huh.
3: Um, you know, I'd say I probably am not as concerned with uh, dynamics as I am when it's a, an acoustic bass because it's so softer. You right. know, I'm trying to... I'm trying to fucking, you know, really dig in there. and But Don, Don and Rob had, I mean, they're both amazing players and, and had like a nice, such a nice acoustic thing. And I never wanted to be too loud on top of that, you right. know. But then you got weird, weird saying everybody turned down, but then he's fucking cranked. It's all hell. <laughs> <you know? laughs> what,
1: what, what else you got going on right now? You're sitting in your studio, I know that. So what else are you working on right now? You had so much time at home, I'm sure you're messing around with something.
3: Uh, you know, what I, I started doing, I want, I wanted to redo some Grateful Dead stuff. So I started working on some stuff and I haven't finished anything yet because, because I got so much shit and I'm, I'm always resetting it up and rewiring it and fucking, you know, trying to add more shit. But, um, (laughs) and then, and and then, then every now and then something needs to go to the shop. And so I got fucking a month of waiting for something to get out of this shop but uh but yeah i'm i'm uh, i'm working on a few things i wanted to do uh there's an artist that that was very underrated that i wanted to uh, see if i could bring more uh attention to a guy that played with the george clinton and funkadelic group and ohio players actually very influential guy named juni walter Junie morrison and uh i guess outside of the funk and f- funkadelic world or whatever not too many people know about him but um, he was pretty influential songwriter, you know, and, uh, and he has some obscure albums in the seventies and eighties that, that's got some interesting songs on it. And I was going to do a cover of one of them and, uh, I'm working on that right now before I decided to re we were relabel my entire patch bay last night, but then I was up to one in the morning doing that anyway. But, uh, um, he's got a, a, a song, uh. It goes something like, you know, if, if if you show me yours, baby, I'll show you mine. And who knows what he's talking about. But I, I was going to do a, a cover of it and talk about your vaccination card. There you go, you
1: man.
3: <laughs> vaccination card. I'll show you my vaccine. I
1: love card. it, um, All right. Hey, before I let you go, you got to do this with me. Every one of my guests, I pull this on them. It's a quick lightning round. Just going to ask you a bunch of questions. Just shoot from the hip. The first one. <laughs> Uh, first show you never you never really got to see the dead so i'm going to skip that first show one first show you played with anybody in the dead how about that
3: first show i played with anybody in the dead well i ha- i can't not say when i was at that casadero music camp because i have to add this anyway um there was a, a brazilian percussionist up there named jose lorenzo had a group called batucache uh uh and and um and he was working with Mickey Hart. 1979, I, my buddy, the, the same guy who used to play, we used to listen in, to Grateful Dead in his room. He, uh, he, uh, uh, Jose asked the two of us if we wanted to come to a party at Mickey Hart's ranch in Nevado. I think it was 1979. I think it was Fourth of July. I think there was a stage set up outside. He had a barn. There was a barn there. Whatever. Big right. you steal your face on the barn. Uh my buddy I my buddy I see Ayurto, the famous percussionist fucking yeah. passed out like by by this fucking table of fucking uh, alcohol, giant table of alcohol, and then there's a Ayr, sleeping right there. And then fucking Bob comes walking out of the house and my buddy goes, That's Bob Weir. And I, I he walks right by me. I go, Hi and he didn't say anything, you know. Like, All right, whatever. <laughs> and then and then so then and nobody was playing. I think everybody's fucking Drinking, who knows? So we were kids, so fucking they go, Hey, why don't you guys play? Why don't you guys play? So I got up there and played, and then and 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 they and they were like, Hey, that was really cool. Do you know who you were just jamming with? I was like, Who they were like, that's Bobby Vega?
4: <laughs> that's cool, man. That's yeah,
1: awesome.
3: So I'd have to say that that's probably it. That's, that,
1: probably that's it. a real good first show, okay? Uh, Grateful Dead album studio recordings or live tapes? uh
3: a tough one man
1: i'd have to say live tapes favorite dead album favorite
3: dead album. i can't choose jerry band huh um i'd have to say terrapin station
1: okay i'm getting good i'm gonna add another question in here favorite jerry band album yeah that that fucking the, the, the that 78 show
3: 78 show it's, it's, <laughs> it on, it, i found it it was on um apple music it, there's like a there's like a little series of jerry garcia right thing and all the all the logos look the same and it's like volume whatever to you know 1978 veterans hall awesome. march, march march something 1978
1: favorite favorite non-grateful dead album that desert island album man uh
3: junie morrison um uh and the album is called uh it's called evacuate your seats
1: all right first job
3: my first job yeah was, uh, I think, um, cleaning toilets at that summer camp.
1: <laughs> okay. Favorite color? Purple. Mine, too. A lot of drummers say purple. It's interesting. It's really interesting. Almost every drummer I've had on says purple. Man. That's crazy. Um, favorite venue to play?
3: Oh, uh, favorite venue would have to be anywhere uh, anywhere outdoors without a proscenium. is my favorite venue.
1: <laughs> Best city for a day off.
3: Uh, best city for a day off, I'd have to say middle of fucking nowhere.
1: Okay. First car.
3: First car was a Toyota that my mom gave me.
1: <laughs> Current car. What's that? Current, Current car. car.
3: Uh, It's a beat-up-ass fucking car that Claypool told me I'd, I had to buy because I was in Primus now, and I couldn't be showing up in that fucking chipped-up fucking Astro van. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Or whatever the fuck I was riding around, and so he actually found me this fucking uh, 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 uh scratched up Mercedes at a, a used lot on a used Mercedes. Uh, it was a used BMW lot, it was a BMW lot in the used section. It was a C240 Mercedes. I'm still driving that, that 03, it's still got a cassette player in it.
1: Reading any books right now?
3: Uh, not right now.
1: Got any magazine subscriptions?
3: uh just tutorials online
1: gotcha and you know this one i don't know how besides playing what are you most excited to have back in your life kind of sort of now that we're a little bit now we're going back in now but as as we've been coming out of the pandemic and pandemic
3: um just making getting together like in my studio with other people that's because i i got all this shit set up and a lot of reasons that I don't finish shit is I hate my own fucking ideas you know I, I, I'll do something that's it's like that sucks I, I need somebody in there I would think my shit's cooler if I was showing off to somebody probably you
1: know uh, I mean, no, I just you gotta have that sounding board man make sure it's yeah. make sure it's good I get it man I really do well hey man I, this has been so much fun I really appreciate you taking the time today I know you got a lot going on but uh, again that's Jay Lane everybody thank you so much for hanging out with me today pal right on thanks Rob my pleasure we'll see you again soon okay brother Well, that brings us to the end of yet another episode. I'd like to thank Jay Lane and Garrett DeLoyan for being here. I'd also like to thank my sponsors, The Clean Store, The Authenticity Academy, and Grateful Sweats. I should also mention that uh, Brad Sarno and I have had a little trouble getting together to put some segments together for you, but we're working on it, and hopefully the Sarno Music Solutions Breakdown will be back very soon. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a monthly Patreon subscription that offers great bonus content every week or you can show your love with a one-time contribution. And please remember that a portion of your contribution will go to the Rex Foundation. Get info about this and everything related to the podcast at our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. Any love is very, very much appreciated as we try and keep this show rolling along. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team of Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner, Dino English. I'll be back in two weeks with episode number 20. Yes, we have made it to number 20. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant, folks. We got to get this going in the right direction again. We really want to be able to keep playing, and right now, I'm very, uh, very skeptical that we're going to be able to get the concert scene back to normal anytime soon without everybody's help. So please take care of yourselves and think about everybody around you as well. Thanks for being here.